Welcome back and to series two of The Skin Pod with me, Louise Thomas-Mins, skin health therapist, educator, product founder and serial entrepreneur. I am excited to bring you once again a whole host of special guests who all have one thing in common, an interest, an obsession in skincare. Before we get going with this week's episode, I want to tell you about the sponsors of this series, which happens to be very close to my heart, as it's Louise Thomas Skincare, a real labour of love uh, that started some 18 years ago, um, was to develop and formulate my own signature skincare range. Seven years ago, I started this process and earlier in 2022, I launched the first in the range, The Cleanser. It's really been a tough ride to get to launch with my vision being quite a simple one. Through my passion, expertise and education, I aim to empower everybody to take control of their skin health. You can learn more about my mission and the products at louisethomasskincare.co.uk. And I remember wanting to sort of be a surgeon, but um, actually being completely hopeless at it because I kept passing out on the operating table. So, Oh my goodness, <laughs> really? And perimenopause is a term that, to be honest, I don't remember talking about when I was at university. It's something that's become a much more common term that I use hundreds of times a day now, <laughs> but perhaps didn't being raised in a home where there was deprivation when you were a child, you know, being a smoker, being from an Afro-Caribbean or, a, you know, South Asian origin, they have um, much higher rates of earlier menopause. It's really important for things like our brain health, our skin health, our gut health, our heart health, our vascular health, our bladder health. We have since looked back at the data from that trial and the published um, findings were, were completely wrong. Martin is a GP, women's health doctor and registered member of the British Menopause Society. She is passionate about optimising physical and emotional wellness for women at all stages of life and has a particular interest in the management of perimenopausal and menopausal symptoms. I recently had an HRT review with Fanula to try and iron out some of the bumps in the perimenopause road that I am still struggling with. And I'm delighted to have her join me as a guest on the Skin Pod, as this life change has such an impact on all aspects of women's health. But of course, one of those elements is skin. Welcome to the Skin Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, <laughs> where to begin, really? Because this is a topic that I've wanted to chat about for quite some time, and there is definitely a lot to talk about. Before we dive into sort of skin health and menopause, I'd really love for you to tell us all about how you and why you decided to focus on wellness for women and how you kind of transitioned from a GP practice to what you're doing now. I'd love to learn that process. Thank you so much for having me on, Louise. It's um, a real pleasure to be here with you today talking about women's health, which is a real passion of mine. And so whenever I get the chance to talk openly about it and share 
information and tips and tricks and things with women I, I you know and men I'll jump at the opportunity so thank you very much so how did I get here so I've always had an interest in women's health during medical school a lot of my extra work was done on women's health topics and subjects and I really enjoyed the um, postgraduate jobs I did in obstetrics gynecology and women's health subjects but here's a little truth that not many people know. I've got really, really low blood pressure. And I remember wanting to sort of be a surgeon, but um, actually being completely hopeless at it because I kept passing out on the operating table. So, Oh, my goodness, <laughs> so really? That was my health and kind of career uh, well and truly over. Also, I am quite squeamish. Which means that labour ward is never a good a good place for me. So, I love your honesty. That's brilliant. Oh wow. But the other, you know, career within medicine that, you know, we see a lot of women's health within, um, and that is also really nice in general, where you can care for people from literally the moment they're born all the way through to the end of life, um, is general practice. And so I made the decision to train to be a general practitioner and I worked as an NHS GP for several years after completing um my training then have my own children. And of course, there's nothing like a personal experience to provide with an insight and an empathy for the people who you care for, who are also going through those life stages. And uh, whilst working as an NHS GP after my children were born, became aware of the fact that there were just so many female patients that were presenting with a huge raft of of symptoms that were really quite troublesome, uh, but very difficult to sort of pin down and treat effectively. And I got increasingly frustrated by the fact that there was this revolving door of, of patients who we really weren't actually helping a great deal. Yes, we were sending them off to see the cardiologist about their palpitations and the gynecologist about their bleeding symptoms, and they might be on antidepressants for the way that they were feeling in their mood, but we weren't really getting to the bottom of it. So I then set about doing some um, additional learning and education. Actually, this journey started before I completed my family. It was, it was before my children were born, but sort of really firmed it up when I had the opportunity to then have time and space to, to go back and to learn more. And so I've done lots of additional training in women's health and in particular menopause care. And I'm a member of the British Menopause Society who sort of oversee the guidance um, in the UK around um, good menopause care. And I suppose naturally I became the person a clinic that I was working at where people would come and see me specifically to talk about their women's health issues, their perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And by word of mouth, it just sort of snowballed from there. And I ended up in a situation where I was almost exclusively seeing women's health, seeing very little other general practice. So it just then um, became a really logical step to step away from general practice and actually, you know, involve myself more deeply and completely in the women's health field but without having to do any of the surgical stuff in the way that the obstetrics and gynecologists are. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And oh, wow, that's a brilliant summary of, of your career to date. So thank you for that. And I'm interested as well as to, because you mentioned about, you know, seeing women for all of these different health concerns, whether it was heart concerns, palpitations, really kind of, as you said, heavy bleeding, um, terrible kind of period related symptoms. Can you remember almost was there a moment where you suddenly, you know, this aha moment of wait a minute. I think we forget that the body is, it works synergistically, doesn't it? It's always trying to find that homeostasis and find that balance. So can you remember that moment where you went, oh my goodness, this is all relating back to perimenopause and menopause? I remember it quite clearly, actually. And it, it's alongside, so it was a stage of my career where I was 
completing my general practice training between my two children. And so things were pretty chaotic and busy. And in an NHS general practice, you're seeing patients in very short appointments, sort of in 10 minute appointments, sometimes shorter. And so often you'd have a patient who would come to you several times about a different symptom. And I've got a couple of real standout patients that I remember from that time. And at a similar time, I went to an educational event and I saw Dr. Louise Newson doing a talk on menopause. So you could choose whether you went to a breakout session with you know different people. And I went to see her because I was really interested to hear what she had to say. And it was that light bulb moment. I sat there in the front row listening to what she had to say. And I just thought to myself, this makes sense. It makes sense for that patient. It makes sense for that patient. It makes sense for that patient. And it made sense for so many patients then that I saw after having that educational session. And I think that Louise's work is incredible because every time she gets up and she speaks to a room full of clinicians, each of those is then going to go away and have a similar experience to me. And that's all going to then propagate into improved women's health, you know, across the board and across the nation, hopefully. Oh, that's brilliant. And you also now are just doing some amazing work to help women understand that, um, you know, the, the literal highs and lows, which to a degree we'll get into this, but is normal. However, now we are blessed with this information so that we don't have to put up with that normality. But there needs to be an, an acceptance, I guess, to a degree that, you know, some of those symptoms, there are going to be highs and lows because we're female and that's how we operate. It might be really nice then at this point, because what I don't want to do is to make that assumption that everybody listening fully understands what is the perimenopause and what is the menopause. So I wonder, can we just sort of start by giving a bit of a definition of both of those? And maybe in just naturally doing that, we're going to quash a few myths around that in terms of when it starts, when it stops as well. I think that would be a really useful place to start. I agree. I think that is a super useful place to start because historically this has been something that's been very poorly understood by both women and men in the population, but clinicians as well. So um, to start off with, menopause is essentially the point at which you have not had a natural period for 12 consecutive months. And so often this is what we call a retrospective diagnosis. So you only know it's happened when you're looking back and you can say, actually, I haven't had a period for 12 months. That's the point of menopause, i.e. you have stopped having periods, your ovaries are no longer ovulating, and every point from that onwards is going to be postmenopausal, or sometimes we call it menopausal. And the run-up to that point of menopause can be a very ill-defined period of time that we call the perimenopause. That in turn is preceded by premenopause, which is when we're sort of within our normal reproductive years. And perimenopause is a term that, to be honest, I don't remember talking about when I was at university. It's something that's become a much more common term that I use hundreds of times a day now, <laughs> perhaps didn't 10 or 15 years ago. And as I said, it can be an ill-defined period of time. On average, um, it can last between six to 10 years before your point of menopause. But actually, it can start up to 15 years before your menopause. Wow. Now, bearing in mind the average age of menopause is about 52. But to give that a sort of more broad average, most women will experience their menopause between the ages of 45 and 54, which means if you're going to be somebody who's going to have a menopause at 45, you might well start to experience perimenopausal symptoms in your early to mid 30s. So, I think gone are the days when we accept the narrative that you're only 
menopausal or only experiencing symptoms of hormone fluctuation or imbalance at the point where you haven't had a period for 12 months. Yeah. Because it's just not true. We know that physiologically or biologically, what's happening in the run up to the menopause is that your ovaries produce or start to mature a set of follicles at the beginning of every menstrual cycle. And it's that group of follicles that mature and produce estrogen during that first stage or first half of the cycle. The dominant follicle is then what gets ovulated mid-cycle. So as we're getting older and our ovarian reserve declines over time as we're aging, you know, we've lost more follicles every menstrual cycle over our lifetime. There's fewer follicles there to mature. There's less estrogen around. Sometimes there's more estrogen around because things have become unpredictable. And what we often see is this real sort of fluctuation in terms of estrogen, but it has a, it's a fluctuation with a downward trend. So most of the time what's happening is things are going up and down, but in a sort of a slow, gradual downward trend to the point at which then you don't have any follicles left. You're not ovulating anymore. And as a result, not really producing much in the way of estrogen from the ovaries. Yeah, that was just a brilliant explanation, which of course I would expect it to be from you. So thank you for that. And actually, I mean, for me, I didn't have my child until I was 37. So yeah, still getting over the fact that I was classed as a geriatric mum. But let's leave that to one side. Yeah. But actually, I find it fascinating that in your early to mid 30s, you said this process starts to happen. And I definitely think that I mean, I, I'm, maybe it's just me, but I wouldn't think of that as being the case because you think of yourself as perhaps being really fertile. Maybe you have children already or you're thinking about having children still. It's definitely not a time. I definitely didn't think about it in my 30s that actually, if I look back, a lot of those symptoms that were coming in and those real highs and lows probably were perimenopausal. I think I only made the connection, you know, I'm 45 this year, probably four to five years ago, if I look back honestly and go, yeah, I've definitely been perimenopausal for four to five years. I've been living with some of those symptoms. So I think it's really important, isn't it, to almost just, we need to get over this fact of, oh yeah, you're old, you're in your fifties if you're going to be perimenopausal. And again, as you said, what you're trying to do is to educate women and men, because that's really important as well, but just to have that understanding that it's okay to start considering that that may be the issue in your 30s. And I think the earlier we have an awareness of what to expect, the better prepared we will be when that time comes. Because actually, you know, statistically, when we look at sort of health determinants, there are some things that will predispose women to experiencing their menopause earlier and therefore more likely to experience perimenopausal symptoms earlier. So things like being raised in a home where there was deprivation when you were a child, you know, being a smoker, being from an Afro-Caribbean or, a, you know, South Asian origin, they have um, much higher rates of earlier menopause. And so it's important if you are at more risk of having an earlier menopause that you start to think about what symptoms you need to watch out for so that when they start to happen, you can take a proactive and informed approach. But also the nature of the perimenopausal beast is is that it can all happen quite insidiously. You know, oestrogen is a super duper hormone. Um, It is essential for our beautiful and wonderful female bodies to be able to do 
that whole reproductive piece, but also it's really important for things like our brain health, our skin health, our gut health, our heart health, our vascular health, our bladder health. And so when changes happen subtly to start off with, the symptoms might be quite subtle. And often if they're happening in a number of different places in the body, then you might not automatically think, could this be something to do with my hormones? you might brush it off as something to do with stress or whatnot, which is what I see a lot of people do. They come to me once things have kind of got to a crisis point and because they've been rationalising away their symptoms for a number of years um, without perhaps recognising that, that that collection of symptoms might be due to a, a sort of a common root cause. And so I talked earlier about ovarian reserve and that declining over our reproductive years. So for women who haven't used hormonal contraception, who've had a regular period every single month of their life, they're going to you know, get to the bottom of that reserve quite quickly or more quickly than somebody who's been on hormonal contraception that stopped them ovulating for five or 10 years. They then had two or three pregnancies that you're not oh, ovulating during pregnancy. Yeah. You don't ovulate if you're breastfeeding. So actually the age at which we hit menopause can be dictated by non-modifiable things, but also, you know, things that change within our lives. But our ovarian potential, that, that number of follicles that we have to start off with, that's predetermined when we're five months old as an embryo or as a, as a baby in our mother's womb. So that ovarian potential is actually something that's predetermined quite significantly by genetic factors from both maternal and, and paternal factors. So there are so many different things that can feed in that will kind of influence when you're going to experience your menopause and thus when you're likely to experience perimenopause. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that there is a very specific type of menopause that we call premature ovarian insufficiency. And this is where the ovaries essentially, not because they've run out of follicles, but for other reasons, they, they stop functioning normally. And this can plunge people into a very sudden and premature menopause. And that can happen at any age. You know, that can happen in your late teens. It can happen wow. in your 20s. And so it's got a very similar set of symptoms. And so there is no such thing as too young to need to be aware of this, which is why it's crucial that education is happening in schools as well as, you know, in the wider community. And I think that, it, it, you know, it's relevant to everybody because the symptoms can be so far reaching, but can become very debilitating. Not for everybody. Some people are absolutely fine. And that is brilliant. But for a lot of people, it can be really, really difficult. So picking it up, working out what it is, and then having the strength and the empowerment to go to your doctor and say, look, this is what I think is going on. And can we address this proactively? I think that's what's really important. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Where to start there? I literally <laughs> sitting here going, oh, my goodness. I didn't know. First of all, I didn't know that it can be affected by that ethnicity. Mm -hmm. That has just blown my mind. But what also has blown my mind is what you said about having that ovarian reserve and that's genetic and you have that, that's kind of set in whatever your stone is. But then depending on what you have done in terms of contraception or not contraception, having children, breastfeeding will obviously, and now it is obviously, will affect how slowly or quickly that happens as well. Oh, How old you were when you started your periods? 
you know, oh a lot goodness. of people start their periods very young and yeah. they've started two or three years before their peers. The likelihood is that even if they're on the exact same journey as somebody else, they're going to then stop their periods at a similar time. Before. Oh, that is so fascinating. It, I think it's really fascinating yeah. to think about it. And again, you know, a bit of a light bulb moment. Why aren't we more aware of this so that we can be more alert to what might be happening to our bodies before it happens so that we can do a bit of the prevention work but also then be proactive when it does start to happen. And also exactly as you said about getting this education into schools you know why as teenagers are we not learning about the cycle you know those different stages in your cycle you know again kind of just encouraging teenage girls obviously predominantly but to understand that it's okay to have those highs and lows and it's okay to talk about them so not that it should be you know used as an excuse to get out of PE or whatever but actually it's normal for you to have those those cognitive issues going on we talk about puberty a lot don't we but we don't then explain to teenagers in a little bit more detail about how they could look at gently tracking their cycle and understanding those symptoms and actually then they're going to be able to understand their bodies more and, and move forward with that. Well, you touched very briefly there and, and sort of talked about recognising some symptoms. Now, again, I don't want to assume that everybody knows what those symptoms would be. And there's a lot of talk about perhaps the obvious stuff like hot flushes, night sweats, you know, sort of change in mood. But is there a sort of a small list of symptoms that you see a lot of that perhaps we are not connecting with this kind of issue that's going on within the body? Um, I think, again, it's helpful to sort of start in some ways with the basics. You know, we've got oestrogen and progesterone and testosterone receptors throughout the body. So ultimately, there is scope for you to experience symptoms of low levels of those hormones absolutely everywhere. The most commonly reported difficulty is sleep difficulties, then memory or concentration issues, hot flushes, night sweats, anxiety, depression, joint aches and pains, period changes, not just them becoming heavy, but cycles changing. Sometimes they're becoming lighter or more painful. Any change in bleeding does need to be investigated or needs to be considered by a doctor. Um, Other things like palpitations, headaches and recurrent UTIs are kind of still those headline symptoms, but perhaps less obvious. And there are then a set of far less obvious symptoms. There are 34 symptoms that have been defined. Actually, now it's a relatively old study. And uh, there's something called the Green Climacteric Scale, which includes these 34 symptoms. And it's a useful place to start if you want to do a bit of symptom checking. So, you know, if you're going to make some lifestyle changes, for example, you could see how many symptoms you've got intervention, you know, put the intervention in place and then do the survey again or the questionnaire again and see what kind of difference you've made. Or equally, if you're thinking about embarking on HRT, you know, doing it before, during and then further down the line to see what sort of objective improvements are being made. But some of the less obvious symptoms, which I do see actually much more frequently than I think we're we're led to believe, there's one in particular that's skin related, something called formication. Okay. Which is where you get this sensation that there's insects crawling under the skin. Oh. And I remember vividly a patient coming to see me with this symptom probably about 15 years ago. And I was completely stumped. You know, we sent off blood tests or sent it to the dermatologist. You know, there wasn't any rash to see, but she had this very clear history of it feels like there's insects under my skin. Oh, my goodness. Now I know that it was probably something to do with her hormones. And I'm sorry if you're listening for not knowing that at the time. (laughs) (laughs) 
but general dryness. So we get, you know, estrogen is as a real hydrating hormone. And so when it's deficient or low, what we see is dryness across the board. So we all, I think, probably know about skin dryness symptoms. We might know about the vulval and vaginal dryness symptoms, but that can often manifest in a subtle way. So it might not feel like like overt dryness, but just an irritation or a niggle or a discomfort when you're using a tampon or, you know, you know, need for lubrication during intercourse, that sort of thing. But also dryness to the eyes. So the surface of the eye is a um, a really fascinating structure um, and requires a lipid rich, a fat rich fluid to be, you know, expressed across the eye on a regular basis when we blink in order for that blinking process to be nice and smooth. But what happens is the lipid content and the fluid content of that covering of the eye changes. So your eyes then produce more tears to help lubricate the eyes. So you have something called dry eyes, which paradoxically causes your eyes to water all the time. And it is a really common symptom. So, you know, it was one of mine. I would go for a walk on a non-windy, you know, non-spring day and I would be streaming because oh. my eyes were so dry that just the air going past them was yeah, causing them just, to, oh to water goodness. all the time. So that's a really common but probably not particularly well documented one. And similarly, sort of dryness and mucosal changes in the mouth. So we often hear of people complaining of something called burning mouth syndrome, where their mouth just feels very, very different to how it used to feel. Gums can start to bleed um, and um, people can report getting persistent halitosis or a change in the sort of odour that's coming from the mouth. Also, itchy ears. I mentioned a minute ago, so chronic otitis yeah. uh, externa, where you get an itchiness in the ears that's intractable and difficult to get rid of. And a change in body odour is quite a common one. So, yes. you know, just an, a change that isn't necessarily bad, but that it's noticeably different. Feeling tearful, um, struggling to find words. That's a really common one. And often people will think they're going completely mad. You know, I can be talking to a client about a product that I know inside out, back to front, and yet I cannot remember what the ingredient is. And I just stare at them vacantly thinking, great, they're looking at me like, I'm waiting for your advice. And I'm like, it's, nope, I've I've lost, it's really weird. Or I'll be reading my daughter a book at night and I keep stumbling over my words. I had exactly the same and it it really frightened me. Yeah. I actually went to see a neurologist about it because I was so terrified that I had something going on. Oh, my goodness. I would be reading and I would just, I'd come across something and I, I it was like my mind went completely blank. Yeah. And, if, and then the children get worried. They're like, what's <laughs> yes. going on? And I'd just brush it off, as most parents do with, oh, I'm just, I'm probably just a bit tired, Maggie. Oh, I keep <laughs> jumbling my words up, don't I? She's like, literally look at me like, oh, my God. It's awful, isn't it? Oh, it is. Oh, that's fascinating. One of the other ones that's actually quite common and, it, it, you know, in some ways can be a topic all in its own right, new onset allergies or worsening allergy symptoms. And in particular, people suddenly realising that they cannot tolerate wine, um, red <gasps> wine particularly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I hear it so frequently, but it, there's, there is like a couple of biological reasons for it. So alcohol tends to increase estrogen. And so if your estrogen is low and then you have alcohol, what can happen is your estrogen levels can then peak a little bit. I did not know that. Oh, And wow. then they dip again. And then you can end up getting a big kind of set of symptoms from the dips in the middle of the night when your estrogen levels have dipped back down again. But also what a lot of alcoholic drinks and particularly fermented alcoholic drinks like wine 
what they do is they can sensitize the histamine system ah. in the body and they can trigger an increase in histamine, which can then give rise to all manner of symptoms. So sneezing, rhinitis, skin changes, flushing, gastrointestinal symptoms. And so, so many people I come across now in their sort of uh, 40s and 50s have had to, to give up wine, which is really sad because it's a really lovely thing to enjoy in a kind of normal and yeah. sociable and healthy way. Um, and there are still some studies that claim that a small glass of red wine is beneficial from a cardiovascular perspective. But yeah, a lot of people have, have given wine up often as a kind of first thing because they've realised actually it's something that makes them feel rubbish. But also food, so people find that they're then more intolerant to things like gluten or dairy, often then cut that out of the diet, which, you know, cutting dairy out of the diet is fine if you're then supplementing, but it can be a very dangerous thing to do at a point in our lives when our bone mineral density is dipping. If we then take calcium out of the diet, that's going to potentially accelerate that bone mineral density loss that we're already experiencing perimenopause and make it um, more likely that we'll develop things like osteopenia and osteoporosis. So, you know, it's important to consider those things if you have noticed that you've become more sensitive to certain things in the diet. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. And actually, from my perspective as well, I've definitely had um, you know, I, my target market now is pretty much mid thirties upwards. So I'm I'm working with a lot of people that are in the same boat as as we are in terms of these symptoms, and I'm definitely more wary of you know how am I going to treat their skin, keeping a check on that lipid barrier that I always talk about. But what you were saying about you know not having the enough lipids in the eye obviously you know the skin has that beautiful lipid barrier which we rely on for protection and if that's being altered through that hormonal shift then from my viewpoint i need to be cautious about what are they using sometimes the client will say i can't use that product anymore I've, there's a slight reactive response so again it makes sense for me to look at well yeah it would be because actually it's impairing that lipid barrier and it's breaking down your skin's natural defense as well as you know sometimes we see what might be termed as accelerated aging you know i definitely have lots of clients saying all of a sudden i feel like i've aged oh, overnight. overnight yeah i've got these lines around my eyes and actually sometimes yes it's of course to do with that you know decline in estrogen but it's also because they are losing hydration from the skin. And if we can work that out a little bit, then sometimes those lines are there because of the water loss in the skin. That's absolutely fascinating. And we've talked about with skin then that you can get this very specific, I mean, as you say, that poor woman, I've experienced that a little bit, that that skin crawling, very a very small amount, thank goodness. Sometimes randomly on my legs in the evening, I'll suddenly have this oh, it's like like a restless leg and feels like there's something on, on the skin. So we've spoken about that and we've spoken about, you know, sort of how potentially it could give rise to that histamine response. Discover today why 97% of users would buy our cleanser again. The holy grail of any skincare routine, the cleanser efficiently cleanses while supporting the skin's moisture level and pH. It's a luxurious foaming cleanser that uses a coconut derived surfactant to lift makeup, dirt and oils from the skin so they can be washed away. You can buy the cleanser at www.louisethomasskincare.co.uk. What else do you think we could see going on within the skin? Because as you've said, there's estrogen receptors in the skin as well, isn't there? 
So in the skin, but also in those subcutaneous structures. So, you know, in the muscles and the tendons and the subcutaneous fat on which our skin sits. And so that sense of I've aged overnight, I think comes from both changes in the surface of the skin, you know, that very top surface of the skin, but also because we can lose water from those support structures. And, you know, I find that I've got a real hollow, I've developed a real hollow here. It's because those underlying structures are also dehydrated and the muscles and the tendons that are really important for holding skin structure in place have changed. And so, you know, in terms of how to treat the skin during menopause, obviously there's loads of things that we can do in terms of adding things in topically or physical treatments that can help to stimulate and generate, you know, new cell uh, renewal and, and things like that. But ultimately, actually, if you can treat preventatively and proactively before those changes start to happen, you might see less of the dehydration symptoms, both on the surface and within within the underlying structures, in order to, I suppose, slow down or or, or, or certainly prevent further acceleration of those changes. And hormone replacement therapy is going to potentially be part of that, or you know, getting to the root cause of it. Alongside then also things like nutritional changes and making sure that you're getting plenty of water. It sounds really lame, but you know, a lot of people do only drink one or two glasses of water a day, and actually it's then stands to reason that everything's going to be a bit dry. So drinking plenty of water, making sure that you've got lots of protein in the diet, because obviously all of our cells require protein building blocks, but also loads of healthy fats in the diets, in particular omega-3 fats. All of our cells need healthy fats in order to maintain their barrier and their structure. Um, and also our sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, are derived from healthy fat molecules or, or HDL uh, molecules. If we're using all of that up in order to try and generate hormones because we're becoming deficient actually there's then less of that available elsewhere or there's less of it available generally what people often do in midlife they notice they're gaining weight or that they're not losing weight as easily and they start to restrict and they start to take things out of the diet reduce yes. fat do a low fat diet it's like no it's the worst thing you can do yeah and actually we really need quite a lot of fat and we often need more omega-3s to help support both cell function, immune function, hormone function, but also central nervous system function. And certainly, you know, things like after pregnancy, we can often be quite deplete in these um, omega-3 fats because of prioritizing the baby, etc. when you're pregnant and breastfeeding. And so if you're coming at your perimenopause from a point of being quite deplete in these things, it's really important to get those things in, in the diet. I mean, it's not difficult to, it's just being aware of it and, and getting it in. And if you can't get them in through the foods that you're eating, then thinking about um, about supplementing them. But the other things to you know consider um, alongside HRT from a root cause perspective, making sure that you've got plenty of vitamin D as well. Vitamin D is really important for maintaining normal skin health. And obviously, another massively important thing for skin is wearing SPF in any kind of sunlight. And if we're wearing SPF all the time, we're not getting any vitamin D from Absolutely. sunshine. So yeah, it's a fine line. If you're looking after <laughs> your skin with SPF, you will need vitamin D to go with it in order to help actually with the underlying aspects of things. And then, you know, in menopause, we've got those direct effects on the skin itself, on those structures beneath the skin, but we also have all the indirect effect. So when we're perimenopausal and menopausal, we don't sleep as well. Our energy levels aren't so good. 
we're more vulnerable to being a bit exhausted and potentially not prioritizing our self-care in the same way. We might be so exhausted by the time we get to the end of the day that we just don't want to double cleanse and put the serum and the moisturizer and the retinol on. <laughs> you know, <laughs> If you're aware of what's going on and you're putting boundaries in place and feeling empowered to prioritize your own health and well-being, then it can make things like getting good sleep, which is going to be help, helpful for your health and well-being and your skin anyway, and is going to help to produce those dark circles that seem to sit permanently under my eyes at the moment. But you're also then going to have better motivation and energy for doing the tr- nutritional work and doing the skincare work. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is just that constant cycle, isn't it? And I I know when we spoke and had my review of, of my HRT, which I've been on for a year. And as I say, you know, it's not a quick fix. I think it's so important, again, to understand the way I work with skin. And it, and it sounds like this is the way you work with women is we have to understand it's not one size fits all. We are all unique. We are all individual and it has to be tailored. So I was under no illusion that it was not going to be, yep, two months, brilliant, I've got the balance right. But one of the things I think I said to you was that there's one part of me that understands why I have this exhaustion, not just tiredness, but exhaustion that hits me sometimes because thankfully life is busy with business, couple of businesses, got a young daughter, like to exercise. But on the other side, sometimes it doesn't feel just like a normal, oh, I'm ready for bed tonight. So going back to what you said about it's trying almost not to just brush it off with, oh, it's just I'm a bit stressed out or I just push my body fairly hard. I think you can feel when there's a difference between the two. So and I think it would be quite good at this point to just sort of dip our toe a little bit, because again, as we've just said, it's very, very bespoke, which is why it's amazing that we have access to um, brilliant women like yourself. But if we're looking at HRT and if you had to give us a very brief overview and I think maybe put some women's mind at rest, because I think I still definitely have clients where they are scared to go on it. They don't understand almost in some cases how vital it is for them to go on it. But I'm also then intrigued, and I know we've touched on this a little bit because you've said about the importance of fats, but are there any other really nice supplements that you would say, yep, if you're on HRT, you've ticked the vitamin D box, you've ticked the omega box. Is there anything else that we should reach for in terms of a supplement or, you know, kind of nutritional value as well? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think most women who come to see me have normally already made the decision that they're open to considering hormone replacement therapy or they're wanting to discuss it in a sort of open way. But I appreciate there are hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of women out there um, for whom that's you know not necessarily accessible, but also still do have a lot of fear. And the reason for that is there was a study published about 20 years ago that, you know, connected hormone replacement therapy use with an increased risk of a number of medical problems, including breast cancer um, and heart disease and stroke. We have since looked back at the data from that trial and the published um, findings were were completely wrong, essentially. They've reanalyzed the data from the trial 
and found actually there wasn't a, a significantly increased risk of breast cancer associated with estrogen only HRT, but there is a small increased statistical risk of breast cancer associated with using combined HRT. And there was no increased risk of cardiovascular disease for women using HRT within a certain window of opportunity. And subsequent studies have been consistent in finding that HRT is very um, helpful at reducing cardiovascular risk endpoints of so things like heart attacks and strokes. And the mechanism by which it does that is estrogen is very helpful at keeping the blood vessels relaxed. So you tend not to have high blood pressure. And it's also good at keeping a good balance between your HDL and your LDL cholesterol, which are the ones, you know, LDL is the one that can fur up your arteries and increase your risk of cardiac um, and, and vascular problems. So we now know that actually HRT is beneficial cardiovascular problems not harmful That's for them brilliant brilliant news for me anyway yeah <laughs> being selfish particularly as i said when given in this window of around 10 years before or 10 years after the point of menopause so if you can get started within that time frame then that you're going to see the likelihood is you'll see benefit the jury's still out slightly in terms of whether we should be prescribing hrt purely for cardiovascular disease okay. there's still lots of studies going on about that but you know we're not at that point yet the other big concern was around breast cancer um, and as I said, for women who can use estrogen-only HRT, actually current studies suggest that there's a slight reduced risk of breast cancer when using estrogen-only HRT, which is completely counterintuitive because I think the narrative is very much that it's the estrogen that drives the breast cancer. So women who can use estrogen-only HRT are women who had a hysterectomy. They don't require progesterone in addition to their estrogen to protect the lining of the womb from getting too thick under the influence of estrogen. Anyone who still has their womb intact and wishes to have hormone replacement therapy requires oestrogen to manage the majority of their problems, progesterone to help protect the lining of the womb, but also to help balance things out and help with some of the symptoms as well. And it's when we use the oestrogen and progesterone in combination that we see an increased breast cancer risk. What's interesting, and a recent study was published looking at the different types of progesterone. Historically, we used combined hormone replacement therapy um, medications that use synthetic progesterones um, and equine estrogens. And we now have available newer medications that we call body identical, i.e. the molecules in these you know, regulated medications are as close to the molecular structure of our natural hormones as is possible. And so they mimic our natural hormones much more reliably okay. with fewer side effects. And actually the safest form of progesterone to be on in this recent study is something called eutogestan or micronized progesterone, which is body identical. Unfortunately, it's only available in capsule form, which means that we are limited in some ways to how we can prescribe it. But that would be the safest progesterone to be on from a breast cancer risk perspective, followed closely by the use of a Mirena coil. So a Mirena coil is um, something that was designed as a contraceptive, but is also a very useful treatment for heavy and painful menstrual bleeding, which is another common symptom at this stage of life. It's also a really robust form of contraception. So for people in their sort of 40s um, or even 30s who might be experiencing some of these symptoms, actually a Mirena coil can be an absolute game changer yeah. because it's going to help to be contraception, blood, con you know, bleeding loss control, but also the progesterone element of the HRT with minimal risk and maximum benefits. So generally speaking, women who've had a hysterectomy can have oestrogen only. Women who haven't had a hysterectomy will need oestrogen and progesterone. And that's where there is this potential risk. Yeah. The other hormone is testosterone. Yes. And <laughs> I think we're going to be stepping that's... into another another episode um, on this. Yeah. But yeah, please do just touch on that for us because it's it's so relevant. 
Yeah, it's a really important female hormone. It's one that's been overlooked for far too long. And it tends to start to decline from our mid-30s naturally as we just get older and it isn't necessarily anything directly related to perimenopause. In perimenopause, levels continue to decline and then postmenopausally, the vast majority of women will be, you know, low or deficient in ovarian testosterone. What can sometimes happen is the adrenal glands can pick up and start producing um, testosterone naturally. And so not all women will be deficient in testosterone and not all women will need testosterone therapy. Because it's something that hasn't got a huge body of research behind it at the moment testosterone replacement therapy we need to be quite cautious about we need to have baseline blood tests and if your levels are low and you've got symptoms of deficiency a trial of treatment can be started and then blood tests need to be reviewed on a regular basis to make sure we stick it we stick in therapeutic range and then you know the main symptoms of testosterone deficiency will be a persistent um, loss of sexual desire or problems with arousal as well as some cognitive problems mood changes energy issues so you mentioned that you get sometimes very very tired sometimes if you've been on estrogen and progesterone and stabilized on that those deep fatigue episodes can sometimes be testosterone related so it's important to just check that out yes which we're going to do exciting Then you asked about, you know, what supplements and like you said, vitamin D tick, uh, omega-3 tick, SPF. I'm going to add that in there because I think that's Thank hugely you. important. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, perfect. But what other supplements would I suggest? So from a symptom relief perspective, um, there's no huge body of evidence, but there's lots of anecdotal and small research evidence to suggest that things like black cohort and red clover can be really helpful food supplements to help with hot flush symptoms. Um, we know that magnesium, which has got quite a broad normal range physiologically. Oh, I love magnesium. Can be really helpful for things like sleep disturbances and anxiety issues. Um, it's quite nice to use the magnesium through the skin and use it towards the end of the day when you might actually find that it helps with getting more restful sleep and reducing anxiety. Um, for hair, skin and nails, I'm using something that's got some zinc and iodine in it. Um, I also use collagen, about 10 grams a day. Recent studies suggested you need about 10 grams a day, milligrams, I can't remember, in order to get sufficient benefit from that. And then, you know, vitamin C to help with immune system, um, B12 and folate, important B vitamins that, you know, I've got a pretty healthy and varied, you know, heavily plant-based, but also meat-containing diet. Um, but the vitamin supplement that I take has got a bit of those vitamins in too, in order to just support normal neurological and central nervous system function, function which B12 and folate could be really important for. Um, then, you know, other herbals, which I think can be quite useful. So starflower oil or oil of evening primrose, particularly for breast pain symptoms, um, which can be a real problem at this phase. Um, also something called Agnes Castus. It's probably the only herbal that's got any <laughs> any decent evidence body or research body behind it. Um, and that can often be really helpful if what you've identified is worsening PMS. So if the PMS is just really bad for one week and then it's really bad for two weeks, and it's getting more persistent and your good week is getting shorter and shorter, um, Agnes Castus is a, is a safe and, 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 and you know readily available supplement that you could try in the first instance if you wanted to. And then I'm just trying to think of what the other ones are. I'm having a brain moment. My brain's just gone. <laughs> well, well, thank you, because you've just reminded me that I've run out of my magnesium, which I talk about magnesium so much to my clients because it's 
So many of us are, inverted commas, are deficient in that. And also eating primrose oil. So thank you. Yeah. That's two things that I need Ashwagandha. to put on. Ashwagandha. Oh, Sorry, that was the other yes. one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and Ashwagandha. <stage>. Yeah. <laughs> so they can be quite good for the kind of anxiety and the tension and the panic kind of symptoms that we can sometimes experience. Yeah. So there's a whole load of, of things to consider trying. But the earlier we become aware that this might be an issue, the earlier we can start making those lifestyle, diet, self-care changes and think about adding in supplements if we need to. But obviously, if symptoms then progress and are, you know, getting to a point where actually you feel like medication is necessary, then HRT is a really great option for treating the root cause. And for the vast majority of women, it's completely and utterly safe. There are a few people who can't use HRT. And for those, there are other options, um, including things like antidepressant medications and a lot of the supplements that we've just talked about. So there aren't no options for, for anybody. Everybody's got some options. And if you're worried about what you can do, then do think about you know booking in for an appointment to discuss that if needed. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. And um, we'll, we'll finish in a, in a moment on a question that I ask all of my guests. But just before that, I'm literally putting you on the spot here, but I would love to have you back on because I think, I mean, first of all, I'm really happy to chat about, you know, sort of the changes that we're going to make to myself coming up, because I think that would be really relevant perhaps for women that are experiencing. And I, I know they're out there because I'm talking to lots of them, those little highs and lows and working out whether testosterone needs to come into that mix, but also to talk about the changes that you then see, the benefits you then see from a skin perspective as well through that. So not just the cognitive symptoms. So I think it'd be great to, to do that and chat more about that testosterone link as well. But yeah, something that I ask everybody is I'm fascinated by other people's skincare rituals. And when you were growing up, was there anything or anyone that, that influenced you or you used to watch somebody perform their rituals and think, oh, that's really weird that what they're doing there. And I always say that for me, it's watching my mum apply her moisturiser from this big kind of purple pot and then do this weird contortion kind of face massage thing. So yes, I'd love to hear if there is indeed anything that um, that has stayed with you or that sticks in your mind. So there, there are two actually, and then a confession. So one is my <laughs> is my grandmother with her Pond's cold cream. <gasps> yes, yes. Every every night when we were oh. when we, whenever we stayed at Nana Granddad's, she would get her pot of Pond's cold cream, and I can still smell it. Like I, I was going to say, I, still smell I bet smell. you can smell it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, and it's quite a fond memory actually, thinking about it. And then um, slightly less fond, but equally as uh, impressionable, Mum's Jolin bleach. <gasps> So oh, do you remember Jolene Bleach? Yes. I'm not there yet, but I know a lot of people are. <laughs> I can already like, you know, but, you know, that ritualistic having to put on the Jolene Bleach and me being completely and utterly fascinated by it. And only now <laughs> do I understand why it was so important. Oh, bless her. And oh, then when brilliant. I was a kid, it was back in the days of apricot scrub oh, and yes. clean and clear. Yeah. Um, clear and clean. And I used to use both of those products. And I now literally wince internally <laughs> at, the, at the idea of what I was doing to my skin. And those little buffet, do you remember those little kind of square? I mean, they were basically like a scouring pad, those little buffy pad things that yes. you used to get in a box. And I, oh my goodness, it's like, yeah, scrubbing bits off the, the burnt bits off a frying pan um mm. oh wow yes i i'm with you 
I remember. But I'm now much better about my skincare, you'll be pleased to hear. <laughs> well, I can see that um, because your skin is indeed beautiful and, and glowing. Um, oh, thank you so much. I I think you're brilliant. You've summarised some really important points for us and made it really easy to understand. And you've highlighted some absolutely fascinating elements. And I really hope that, you know, anybody listening to this, not just women, it gives them a really nice kind of insight into what goes on, what to expect, and more importantly, how we can work towards, you know, living life more fully and feeling healthier um, and younger for longer as well. So huge thanks. And I can't wait to yeah continue my own little personal journey with you as well. And and seeing how it goes. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Coming next, it's the fly on the wall. I am back in the treatment room with Mary for this episode's fly on the wall. So if you listened to season one, then you will know Mary because we did this before. Mary is also um, a qualified aesthetician, a skin health therapist and expert. And we thought it would be nice for you to hear what we have been talking about in the treatment room recently. Uh, Obviously, this is all in complete confidence. We do not discuss uh, particular clients or name any names, but it's just the kind of topics and the themes that we are seeing, maybe some things that are frustrating us slightly. And often we share these um, and discuss how we would move forward with various treatment plans. So thank you for doing this again, Mary. And actually, it's just a really good excuse for us to have this chance to, um, well, yeah, voice our opinions and concerns. So what what's going on? What are you seeing lots of at the moment? And this is weird, isn't it? Because we both treat in the same way, obviously, like ships in the night. We don't, we very rarely get to treat <laughs> at the same time in, in the skin lounge, um, which is sometimes very good reason for that. And other times it can be a little, a little yeah. lonesome. But it's interesting that when we do then have these chats, we both go, yeah, yeah I've been seeing that as well. And it, it is amazing how it isn't just sort of one person's clients that are having similar issues and not always related to seasonal change and things like that. You know, we're coming into that time where we're changing approaches and routines and things through the change of season. Um, it's probably more, my focus at the minute is probably more with clients, their approach to our approach or how they're coming to us yeah. is lovely. And they are struggling maybe a little bit more with a time frame that how long is this going to take? And I struggled to maybe not answer with how long is a piece of string. Oh, um, but giving, giving that advice of it's it's a case of taking the time, following the steps, trusting the process, but also wanting to empathise with them and knowing that it is really horrid having poor skin health or a problem on the face and the skin and quite demoralising looking and seeing at that every day, but trying to approach them and talk to clients and make them understand that it isn't just going to be this magic pot of cream or this one treatment. That's so true. It's a case of if something's been there for so long, we're not going to fix it with just one, one sweeping treatment on the couch. It doesn't quite. No, absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, certainly I'm always really vocal about the fact that, you know, I am an acne sufferer. I have psoriasis. I get it. And I know you've had your 
you know, highs and lows with your skin health as well. And actually, I think from for both of us, that's almost done us a bit of a favour over the years because people feel more comfortable. I can actually remember clients saying to me, do you know what, you know, the fact that I come and see you and you have outbreaks on your skin I used to think, well, that's awful. They must think, well, she's rubbish because she can't even sort her own skin out. But actually they used to say, no, because you get it. You understand what it's like to have to wear makeup every single day to have your skin feeling, you know, sore and uncomfortable. So I actually see it almost as a bit of a blessing in an odd way that we both really do truly empathise and understand that psychological impact. However. Yeah, you're right. I'm I'm seeing the same. I think we're still really in this quick fix mentality, aren't we? Where and we you know, as we've said before, yeah. we are so bombarded with subscriptions to different skincare and you know, amazing services where you can go online and have a consultation and then you get a load of product that is prescribed for you. But you know, it's still really difficult to give that truly tailored advice if you haven't got that person in front of you. And we do. Or if you're not having, sorry, if you're not having that yeah. advice when that new yes. thing comes out. So like, okay, good having a subscription. And I'd like to think that every time we do this, we, we and I know we're, we're quite advocate about saying this to people, they're not getting the same treatment no, twice. Exactly. They come to see us, the skin is different. It's treated differently. And those types of subscription services or product renewal services or what have you need to take that into account. They can't just generalise across the board that you've had one month of this product, so now you are ready for this product. It doesn't work like that. It's not not how skin performs. There's so many other factors to take into control and into account that they're quite quite bad in that people are signing up for this programme and costing this much money. And then having to come in to us and we're going, no, Trying to unravel it, I know. And it's really yeah. difficult because people are very aware of being economical. But when you're desperate, when you have something that is stopping you from leaving the house in worst case scenarios, yeah. um, you're hiding behind a face full of makeup, which maybe is making it worse, you will try anything. You know, it's you. it's coming from a desperate place. But... At the same time, it's. Uh, I actually prefer it when a client comes in and they go, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a bit embarrassed because I'm using literally two products." I'm like, "Oh, hallelujah! That's so much easier for me to then go right. Okay, let's build you a routine that's realistic and for you both from a financial viewpoint, and you're going to do this consistently, as opposed to trying to unravel somebody that's spent a fortune, and you think." oh, these things really aren't right for you. But I just think it comes back to just being patient, doesn't it? And being consistent, you know, it's the same with anything in life. If you if you go and you want to change your body shape or you want to get fitter, you know, you don't expect that you're going to be able to get up one morning and just go out and, you know, I relate to running here, but you don't just get up one day and go, I'm going to run a marathon today. I mean, some people might, but but do you know what I mean? You have to train, not many. You have to train for that. Nobody expects to be able to go, yep, I'm going to go and run that today with no training. I've never run any type of distance. But yet we seem to not apply that when it comes to looking at our skin health. And as you said, that's a really good point. If you've got a chronic skin disorder, And perhaps we are actually working with 
a medical professional, you know, we often work with dermatologists or GPs on this. You're not going to turn that round in a week or after two or after six or after 12 treatments even. You've got to look at how long has that been in place? And more importantly, where is that coming from? You know, what is the underlying cause? And I think still our approach is refreshing to so many people. Luckily, and we're so fortunate because we do still have, and still, but we still have people coming to us. And some of part of me is a little mm. sad inside because they're coming to us and they've they've still been having the treatments and the yeah. processes elsewhere that, in my eyes, should have not been offered to them even in the last five to ten years, let alone this day yeah. and age. And it's, it's a little heartbreaking having them come in and listen to their journey, their story, what they've had so far. And I ask them what it is, what they're wanting to achieve. And it can literally be the simplest thing of uh, to understand my skin or to not have yeah. these outbreaks or go make up free. You know what to do. <laughs> yeah, that is so such a simple request, yeah. isn't it? It shouldn't be hard. And I do, my heart breaks a little bit with them because it's just so frustrating that they've, they've not had that level of care for someone to go, but why is this happening in your skin? Yeah not a it's happening and we're doing this why is that there and in often we can come to that resolve of we'll need to investigate this this and this and some of this is your homework and this is what we can do in here and this is what we can offer but it's a joint effort it's not we aren't we're not no, exactly and that's a really good point and and of course we'd never you know we're never unprofessional about anybody else's work I can remember as a very young beauty therapist a client coming in back in oh gosh you know ancient during the dinosaur times when I used to do nail treatments um, and I can remember a client coming in and was really disgusted with some nail work she'd had done the, the week before and wanted me to correct all of this work and I can remember even back then just thinking this isn't right because that's you know that person who's done that work then they need to know and that's that wasn't me being derogatory to them but it was just a case of you really need to go back and tell them because it could just be they've had a bad day. It could be that their products are malfunctioning. So, you know, it's it's a similar scenario. It's not that we're ever unprofessional derogatory to other therapists, but it's, yeah, it is frustrating when you think you've just got to be honest with people and, you know, and tell them that this is going to be a long journey. And exactly what you said, you have got to work with us. And then we get those incredible, exciting results. And you see that person change and grow, don't you? And yeah, that blossoming of someone when they've come in with that all rock bottom low, don't want to leave the house, soul destroying concern for their skin. And to see them then be able to go, oh, I've I've come in without any makeup on today, or I've had someone compliment me on my skin. And you can just see the joy that brings. Like, it's just so heartwarming to know that they we've we've managed to work with them and get them to that point within their skin journey. Very rewarding. But still, there are those frustrations around. (laughs) Oh, and it's just it's just how it's marketed and mediated. And it's amazing. I'm I'm in awe of those machines and those companies and those products and and how that all works blows my mind that we are drawn into them and people buy into them and it is amazing to me if just a little frustrating when it turns up on my couch and I've got to then unpick it and and explain to someone why it's not working for them 
when it's sold to them as this will work, you know, it's it's quite that's hard. It. And, it, you know, and it certainly keeps us on our toes, doesn't it, Mary? Because our that's what I love about our industry is that it is constantly evolving and moving forward and there are new innovations, but we have to try our best to learn about that as much as we can. But also I think there's nothing wrong in, we are always learning, you know, there's always new research, there's always a scientist that has discovered something new and amazing about the anatomy of, of the skin. So again, we have to change and evolve as therapists and there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, well, it, well it's kind of reassuring and, and interesting that again, <laughs> we are both hearing and seeing and discussing, yeah, the same kind of topics um, in clinic. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it will change no. anytime soon on the same either. I think it's, um, yeah, it's an across the board Absolutely. thing, isn't it? Dr Barton's knowledge and passion for this subject is exceptional and I really can speak from the experience of being a patient but also an avid follower of her on Instagram. Speaking with her for this episode has taught me even more and made it clear that this is a topic we need to keep talking and learning about. So thank you as ever for listening. Thank you to Louise Thomas Skincare for sponsoring series two of the podcast. And thank you to all of those of you that have downloaded, have liked, have subscribed, have followed us. Um, It really does make a huge difference uh, when you do that. So if you haven't, please do that. Uh, Don't forget, you can also follow the Skin Pod show over on Instagram as well. And of course, you can find me at Louise Thomas Skincare on Instagram too. So until next time. 